Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Well, that's me again. <laughs> Old religion dystopia. No, I'm worse than belief. Yeah, let's see if we can really get some more reading in. Oh, uh, I think another infection. So I just uh, haven't been doing, been able to do anything that I needed to do. See, we read about the last. We read about uh, Detours, Rustic Canyon, the Greystone, and Greystone Park. So I guess we're now on Chapter Twelve: uh, Riders on the Storm, the Doors. Quote. By that I mean, get me a lead singer. He's got sort of an androgynous blonde hair, very pretty. We need guitar players, sort of a hatchet face. Wears a hat and plays very fast. Very dramatic. He must be very dramatic. Give me a pound of bass player, pound of drummer, and they're making a little cardboard cutouts. And they're, they hire a producer, they hire writers, and the current stuff now, they don't even bother getting people to play. Don't bother with that guitar player, bass player, drummer nonsense. The people in those bands can't write, play, or sing. End quote. David Crosby describing the synthetic manufactured nature of today's rock bands. Which is quite a contradiction because he was in one, wasn't he? Yeah, okay. At the very beginning of this journey, it was noted that Jim Morrison's story was not, quote, in any way unique, end quote, that, however, it is not exactly true. It is certainly true that Morrison's family background did not differ significantly from that of his musical peers, but in many other significant ways, Jim Morrison was indeed a most unique individual and quite possibly the unlikeliest rock star to ever stumble across the stage. Morse essentially arrived on the scene as a fully developed rock star, complete with a backing band, a stage persona, and an impressive collection of songs, enough, in fact, to fill Doors' first few albums. How exactly he reinvented himself is such a, in such a radical manner reigns something of a mystery, since before his sudden incarnation as singer-slash-songwriter, 
James Douglas Morrison had never shown the slightest interest in music. None whatsoever. He currently never studied, excuse me, he certainly never studied music and could neither read nor write it. But by his own account, he never had much of an interest in even listening to music. He told one interviewer that he, quote, never went to a con- went to concerts, one or two at the most, end of quote, before joining the Doors. He, quote, never did any singing. I never even conceived of it, end of quote. Asked near the end of his life if he had ever had any desire to learn to play a musical instrument, Jim responded, quote, not really, end of quote. So here we had a guy who had never sang, who had, quote, never even conceived, end of quote, of the notion that he could open his mouth and make songs come out. He couldn't play an instrument and had no interest in learning such a skill who had never much listened to music or been anywhere near a band, even just to watch one perform. And yet he somehow emerged virtually overnight as a fully formed rock star who quickly became an icon of his generation. Even more bizarrely, legend holds that he brought with him enough original songs to fill the first few Doors albums. Morrison did not, you see, do as other singers-slash-songwriters do and pen the songs over the course of the band's career. Instead, he allegedly wrote them all at once before the band was ever formed. As Jim once acknowledged in an interview, he was, quote, not very prolific, was not a very prolific songwriter. Most of the songs I've written, I wrote in the very beginning, about three years ago. And I had a period when I wrote a lot of songs, in a quote. In fact, all the good songs that Morrison is credited with writing were written during that period. The period during which, according to rock legend Jim spent most of his time hanging out on the rooftop of, the, of a Venice apartment building consuming copious amounts of LSD. This was just before he hooked up with his fellow student Ray Manzarek to form the Doors. Legend also holds strangely enough that the that the chance meeting occurred on the beach. Though it seems far more likely that the pair would have actually met at UCLA, where both attended the university's rather small and close-knit film school. In any event, the question that naturally arises, though it does not appear to have ever been asked of him, is... How exactly did Jim, quote, the Lizard King, and to quote Morrison, write that impressive batch of songs? I'm certainly no musician myself, 
But it is my understanding that just about every singer-slash-songwriter across the land composes his and her songs in essentially the same manner on an instrument, usually either a piano or a guitar. Some songwriters, I hear, can compose on paper, but that requires a skill set that Jim did not possess. The problem, of course, is that he also could not play a musical instrument of any kind. How, then, did he write the songs? He would have had a would have had to have composed them, I'm guessing, in his head. So we are to believe then that a few dozen complete songs, never heard by anyone, never played by any musician, existed only in Jim Morrison's acid uh, addled brain. Anything is possible, I suppose, but even if we accept that premise, we are still left with some nagging questions, including the question of how those songs got out of Jim's head. As a general rule of thumb, if a songwriter does not know how to read or write music, he can he can play the song for someone who does and thereby create the sheet music which was the case for example with all the songs that Brian Wilson penned for the Beach Boys but Jim quite obviously could not play his own songs so did he I don't know maybe um then uh, there are uh, should be clarified songs that we are talking about here as opposed to just lyrics which would more accurately be characterized as poems because Jim as is fairly well known was quite a prolific poet whereas he was a songwriter only for one brief period of his life but why was that why did Morrison with no previous interest in music, suddenly and inexplicably become a prolific songwriter, only to just as suddenly lose interest after mentally pending an impressive catalog of what would be regarded as rock staples. How and how and why did Jim achieve the accompanying physical transformation that changed him from a clean-cut, collegiate, and rather conservative-looking young man into a brooding sex symbol who would take the country by storm. And why, after a few years of adopting that persona, did Jim transform once again in the last years or so of his life into an overweight, heavily bearded, reclusive poet who seemed to have lost his interest in music just as suddenly and explicitly as he had tamed it. It wasn't just Morrison who was, in retrospect, a bit of an oddity. The entire band differed from other Laurel Canyon bands in a number of significant ways. As Vanity Fair once noted, the doors were 
always different. All four members of the group, for example, lack previous band experience. Morris and Mazarek, as noted, were film students, and drummer John Densmore and guitarist Robbie Krieger were recruited by Mazarek from his Transcendental Meditation class, which is, I guess, where one goes to find musicians to fill out one's band. That class, however, apparently lacked a bass player, so they did without, except for those times when they used session musicians, and then claimed that they did without. Anyway, the point is that none of the four members of the uh, the Doors had any real band credentials. Even a band as contrived as the Birds, as we shall soon see, had members with band credentials. So too did Buffalo Springfield, with Neil Young and Bruce Palmer, for example. Having played in the uh, Mina in the my and the I guess is the Mina Birds, M Y N A H Birds, backing a young vocalist who would reinvent himself as Rick Super Freak James, Goldie McJohn of Steppenwolf. Oddly enough, was a Mayan Bird, our Mina Bird, as well. The Mamas and the Papas were put together from elements of the Journeymen and the Mug Wumps, and so on with the rest of the Laurel Canyon bands. The Doors could cite no such band lineage. They were just four guys who happened to come together to play the songs written by the singer who had never sung, but who had a sudden calling and a magical gift for songwriting. And as you would expect with four guys who had never actually played in a band before, they didn't really play very well. And that is kind of an understatement. Don't take my word for it, though. Let's let the band's producer, Paul Rothschild, weigh in. Quote, the Doors were not great live performers musically. They were exciting theor- theoretically. Uh, I'm sorry about that. And kinetically, but as musicians, they did not make it. There was too much inconsistency. There was too much bad music. Robbie would be horrendously out of tune with Ray, and John would be missing cues. There was bad mic usage, too, where you couldn't hear Jim at all. As fate would have it, I have heard some audio of a young and quite inebriated Jim Morrison at the microphone, and I would have to say that not being able to hear Jim at all might have, in many cases, actually improved the performance. 
But performing poorly as a live band, of course, did not really set the doors apart from its its contemporaries. Another thing that was unusual about the band, however, is that from the moment the band was conceived, the lineup never changed. No one was added and no one was replaced. No one dropped out of the band over artistic differences or to pursue a solo career or to join another band. Or for any of the other reasons that bands routinely change shape. It would be difficult to identify another Laurel Canyon band of any longevity that could make the same claim. After their first two albums, the Birds changed lineups with virtually every album release. Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention were in a near-constant state of flux. Love and Steppenwolf changed lineups on a regular basis, with leaders John Kay and Arthur Lee routinely firing band members. Laurel Canyon's country rock bands were also constantly changing shape, usually by incestuously swapping members amongst themselves. But not the Doors. Jim Morrison's band arrived on the scene as a fully formed entity with a name taken from Aldous Huxley's or Aldous Huxley, excuse me, The Doors of Perception, which is a big red flag. A stable lineup, a backlog of some to be of soon to be hit songs and no previous experience writing, arranging, playing, or performing music. Other than that, though, they were just your run-of-the-mill, organic, grassroots, 1960s rock and roll band, albeit one with a curious aversion to political advocacy. Jim Morrison was, by virtually all accounts, a voracious reader, Former teachers and college professors, professors expressed amazement at the breadth and depth of his knowledge in various topics, at the staggering array of literary sources he could accurately cite, and yet he was known to tell interviewers that he, quote, hadn't studied politics that much, really, end quote. But that was okay, according to drummer John Desmore, since, quote, a lot of people at our concerts, at least, they're sort of, it seems like they don't really come here, come to hear us speak politics, end quote. That's the way it was in the 1960s, you see. The young folks of the era just didn't concern themselves much about politics, and certainly didn't want their anti-war icons engaging in anything resembling political discourse. During the Doors' glory days on the Sunset Strip, Morrison, quote, struck up an intimate friendship, end quote, with Whiskey-A-Go-Go owner Elmer Valentine, according to a Vanity Fair article published in September 2006. At the time, Valentine was also, coincidentally, of course, very close to uh, his own secretary slash booking agent, Gail 
slot men whom Jim had known since kindergarten through naval officers' circles. Valentine was also, by pretty much all accounts, including his own, a madman. Uh, Valentine arrived at uh, in L.A. by way of Chicago, where he had worked as a vice cop, a decidedly corrupt vice cop. By his own account, he worked as a police captain's bagman, quote, collecting filthy lucre on behalf of the captain, end quote. He also boasted that even while working as a vice cop, his night job was, quote, running nightclubs for the outfit for gangsters, end quote. One very, quote, very close friend, end quote, from his days in Chicago was, quote, Felix Elder, uh, Elder, uh, Eldery Sile. I guess that's how you pronounce it. Alderizio, also known as Milwaukee, Milwaukee Phil, who was arguably the most feared hitman in the country in the 50s and 60s, carrying out at least 14 murders from San Giannisana uh, to the Chicago Forest, San Gian Sena, Sena, I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, Sam Gian Sena and other uh, Chicago bosses. I'm st- I apologize to Mr. Sam uh, Gwen Sena. I don't know if I pronounced his name or G A N Sena. I don't know. Terrible names. Anyways, Valentine was ultimately indicted for extortion. Though his naturally, but though he naturally managed to avoid prosecution and conviction, venturing out to L.A. circa 1960, Isu found himself running P.J.'s nightclub at the corner of Crescent Heights and Santa, uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, which, as you may recall, was co-owned by Eddie Nash and was the favored hangout of early rocker-slash-murder victim Bobby Fuller. It wasn't long, though, before Valentine had his very own club to run, the legendary Whiskey-A-Go-Go, where numerous Laurel Canyon bands, including The Doors, in the summer of 1966, very satanic year, served their residency. Valentine obviously had considerable financial backing to launch his business empire, and it wasn't much of a secret on the strip where that backing came from. Frank Zampa once cryptically referred to Valentine's backers as an ethnic organization, while Chris Hiltman of the Birds simply noted that whoever financed Elmore, I don't want to know, end of quote. Valentine received far more than just financial backing to launch the whiskey. He got a generous assistance from the media as well. As Vanity Fair noted, quote, within months of the whiskey's debut, Life magazine had written it up. Jack Parr had broadcast an episode 
of his post-nighttime weekly program from the club, and Steve McQueen and Jane Mansfield had installed themselves as regulars. Legendary actor McQueen, it should be noted, was a former U.S. Marine who had served in an elite unit test with protecting President Harry Truman's private yacht. Turning now to the birds, the band that started the folk rock revolution, we find that they were, by any reasonable assessment, an entirely manufactured phenomenon. As a fledgling band, they had any number of problems. The first and most obvious was that the band's members did not own any musical instruments, and that problem was solved, though, by Naomi Hirsch, or I guess it's Hirschhorn, or Hirschhorn, I don't know, better known for funding quasi-governmental projects such as Hirschhorn Museum in Washington, D.C., stepping up to the plate to provide the band with instruments, amplifiers, and the like. So that didn't solve a bigger problem, which was that the band's members, with the notable exception of Jim, later Roger McGuinn, didn't have a clue as to how to actually play those instruments. Cast to play the bass player was Chris Heilman, who had never picked up a bass guitar in his life. As he candidly admitted years later, he, quote, was a mandolin player and didn't know how to play the bass. But the other band members didn't know how to play their instruments either. So I didn't feel too bad, I didn't feel too bad about it, quote. The drummers, the drums was excuse me, on the drums was Michael Clark, who had never before held a set of drumsticks in his hands, but who bore a resemblance of Rolling Stone Brian Jones, which was deemed to be more significant, of more significance than actual musical ability. As Crosby co-author Charles Gott Taleb, I guess is how I pronounce it, recalled. Uh, Clark had uh, played beatnik bongos and conga, conga drums, but had no experience with conventional drumming. And I quote. Richie Underberger, or Unterberger, noted in Turn, Turn, Turn that the guys in the birds in quotes, had barely known each other before getting thrown into a studio where still learning electric instruments and in a couple of cases had never really even played their assigned instruments at all. Actually, Michael Clark didn't even have an instrument to start with on his first rehearsal and even some recording sessions. He kept time on cardboard boxes. Gene Clark, though by far 
the most gifted songwriter in the band and a talented vocalist as well, could barely play his guitar and so was regulated to banging the tambourine, which was Jim Morrison's and a various non-musically inclined member of the Partridge family's instrument of choice as well. David Crosby, tasked with rhythm, guitar duties, wasn't much better. Crosby himself admitted in his first autobiography, does anyone really need to write more than one autobiography, by the way, that uh, Roger was the only one who could really play? The band had another problem. With the clear exception of Gene Clark, the group was a bit lacking in songwriting ability. To compensate their inability, or initially, they initially played mostly covers. Fully a third of the band's first album consists of covers of Dylan's songs, and nearly another third was made up of covers of songs by other folks, folk singers slash songwriters. Clark contributing the five original songs, two of them co-written with McGuinn. As for Crosby, who emerged as the band's biggest star, his only contribution to the Birds' first album was backing vocals. Carl Franzoni perhaps summed it up best when he declared rather bluntly that the Birds' records were manufactured, end quote. Their first album is, in particular was an entirely engineered affair created by taking a collection of songs by outside songwriters and having them performed by a group of nameless studio musicians. For a record, the actual musicians were Glenn Campbell on guitar, Hale Blaine on drums, Larry Nachtel uh, uh, on bass, and Leon Russell on electric piano, and Jerry Cole on rhythm guitar, after which the band's trademark vocal harmonies, entirely a studio creation, were added to the mix. As would be expected, the Birds' live performances, according to Barney Hoskins, awaiting for the sun, or waiting for the sun, excuse me, weren't terribly good. But that didn't matter much. The band got a lot of assistance from the media, with Time being among the first to caption uh, the new band. And they also got a tremendous assistance from Vito and the Freaks and from the Young Turks as previously discussed. We shall return to the birds and to the ubiquitous Vito Palakas in the next chapter. For now, I leave you with this curious little story about bird Chris Hillman's initial arrival in Laurel Canyon. As told by Michael Walker in Laurel Canyon, in the autumn of 1964, a 19-year-old bluegrass adept 
and virtuoso mandolin player named Chris Hillman stood at the corner of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Kirkwood Drive contemplating a for rent sign on a telephone pole across from Canyon County Store. It didn't take him long to find a place to stay, and in the canyon's emerging mythos of enchanted serendipity, one presented itself as if by magic. This guy dries up and says, you, you looking for a place to rent? Hillman recalls, I said, yeah. And he said, well, follow me. Up, It was this young guy who was a dentist. It was his parents' house, a beautiful old wooden house down a dirt road. He lived on top, and he was renting out the bottom part. I just went, wow, perfect. And the guy ended up being my dentist for a while. It was the top of the world, a beautiful, beautiful place. I had the best place in the canyon, end of quotes. And the Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles of 1960s, you see, it was quite common for a very wealthy, per, very wealthy, for a very wealthy person to offer exquisite living accommodations to a random scruffy vagrant. You know, this to be. This to be true because it happened to Charles Manson on more than one occasion. In any event, Chris Hillman's former mountaintop home no longer exists because, as tends to happen in Laurel Canyon, it burned to the ground on what Walker described as, quote, a hot, wicked, a hot, witchy day in the 60s. According to Hillman, Crosby was at my house an hour before the blaze. I can't connect it yet where the Satan factor came into play with David, but I'm working on it. Let me take a break here. Eight Miles High, Chapter 13, Falling Fast, the Birds. Quote, I have to say that, personally speaking, Crosby was worse for the good feelings of the local rock and roll scene than Manson was. And to quote Terry Meltzer, one of the most influential people lurking about the periphery of the Laurel Canyon scene was the Bird's first producer, Terry Melcher. It is fairly well known that Melcher was the son of original actress Doris Day, who was 16 when impregnated and 17 when Terry was born. Melcher's father was trombonist Al Jordan, who reportedly regularly beat regularly beat Day like and likely Terry as well. Jordan 
wasn't around for long, though. His death, when a Mercer was just two or three years old, was yet another Hollywood suicide. After an equally short-lived second marriage, Doris Day married her agent and producer, Marty Melcher, who was universally regarded as one of the biggest assholes in Hollywood. And that's not an easy title to attain, given the fierce competition like Jordan Melcher was well known for being a tyrannical, violent, and abusive man. He also reportedly embezzled some, excuse me, embezzled some twenty million from his wife slash client. On the bright side, though, he did adopt and help raise Terry, who took his name. Terry Melcher, perhaps more so than anyone else had deep ties to virtually all aspects of canyon of the canyon scene, including the Laurel Canyon musicians, the Manson family, the group of young Hollywood actors, generally referred to as the Young Turks, and Evita Paleka's dance troupe. As it turned out, Melcher first met Vita Paleka's when Terry was still in high school in the late 1950s. As Melcher later called, Vito was an art instructor. When I was in high school, we go to his art studio because he had naked models. A half a decade or so later, Melcher and Palekas would each, in his own way, become key players in launching not just the career of the birds, but the entire Laurel Canyon music scene, as well as the accompanying youth countercultural movement. Also, while still in high school, Melcher befriended Bruce Johnston, the adopted son of a top executive with uh, Rexall drugstore, drugstore chain. While growing up on the not-so-mean streets of Beverly Hills and Bel Air, the two recorded together as singing duo Bruce and Terry. Johnston also played in a high school band with Phil Spector, who, it will be recalled, shared with Melcher and various others in this story the distinction of having lost a parent to an alleged act of suicide. As has been pointed out already, it was Spectre's crack team of studio musicians, dubbed the Wrecking Crew, who provided the instrumental tracks for countless albums by the Laurel Canyon bands. Bruce Johnston, meanwhile, went on to become a Beach Boy replacing Wrecking Crew member Glenn Campbell, who had briefly replaced Brian Wilson after Brian abruptly decided that he had no longer wanted to perform live. Brian's brother, Dennis, forged a close bond with Terry Melcher, as well with Greg Jacobson, a would-be actor and talent scout who was married to famed comedian 
What? Oh, okay. Lou Castello's daughter, okay. The trio of Wilson, Melcher, and Jacobson, who dubbed themselves the Golden Penetrators, with Wilson referring to himself rather subtly as the Wood, infamously forged a close bond with a musician prophet uh, penetrator by the name of Charles Manson. In 1966, Melcher, along with Mark Lindsay of the band Paul Revere and the, Ra- and the Raiders, released and moved into a soon-to-be-infamous ha- home at 10050 Silo Drive and uh Benedict Canyon. Lindsay would later have the dubious distinction of also living for a time in that other infamous canyon death house on Wonderland Avenue. Lindsay was also a regular visitor to the log cabin. The two were soon joined by Melcher's girlfriend, actress Candace Burgeon. Melcher and Burgeon remained in the home until early 1969, frequently entertaining high-profile guests from both music and the film industry. During the summer of 1968, when Charles Manson, numerous members of his entourage, including Charles Tex Watson and uh, Dean Morehouse, were staying, Shaking up, or were shacking up with uh, Melcher's sidekick, Dennis Wilson, Watson, and Morehouse were known to regularly visit the Melcher slash Burgeon home on Silo Drive. Charlie Manson is known to have visited the Melcher home on several occasions as well, and to have occasionally borrowed Melcher's Jaguar. Just after Melcher and Burgeon vacated the home, Jacobson reportedly arranged for Morehouse to live there briefly before Tate and Polanski took possession in February of 1969, briefly uh, during Morehouse's stay. Tex, who would later be portrayed as the leader of the Tate and La Bianca hit squad, came calling regularly. His address book would later be found to contain a phone number for the former Polanski residence. Watson had moved out to L.A. from Texas in 1966, of course, after opting to drop out of college, which those who knew him viewed as being wildly out of character. By the spring of 1968, when Charles Watson met Charles Manson at Dennis Wilson's home, Tex was the modest co-owner of Crown Wig Creations on the corner of a Santa Monica Boulevard and uh, a Rodier, Rodier Dio, Rodeo Drive, and Beverly Hills. Uh, 
through the business enterprise that through that business enterprise he had developed extensive Hollywood contacts contacts that came in handy when he began handling large drug transactions and large pills of or piles of cash for Charlie Manson. Tex Watson soon grew so close to Manson that, according to Ed Sanders, he was known to complain at times, quote, that he actually thought he was Charlie, end of quote. According to Vanity Fair, Tex Watson was also, quote, a regular patron of the whiskey, end of quote. Which isn't too surprising given that Elmer Valentine's Club was well known to be a major drug trafficking site during the late 60s. Watson's frequent sidekick, Dean Morehouse, by the way, hailed from uh, Minot, North Dakota, identified by Murray Terry as the longtime home of a process faction with deep ties to, I guess it's off at Air Force Base. Though it is purely speculation, it seems entirely possible that Morehouse served as a handler for both Charlie's, uh, both Charlie's Manson and Watson. Perhaps tellingly, Vince. Oh gosh, Vagelli, uh, Blah. Boo. Boogal. <laughs> Bugliosi. Bugliosi mentioned Morehouse only once in his nearly 700 page treatment of the Manson case, in much the same way that David Crosby ignored Vito Pelecas in his wordy autobiography. In the spring of 1969, the trio Wilson, Melcher, and Jacobson got close with Bobby Basolio, whatever it is, um, Busolio, as well. I'm never, I'm never going to be able to say the guy's name. I've been told by numerous people how to say his name, and I still can't say it. It's like a glitch. It's like I can't ever remember certain numbers. This is MS thing. There's certain words and names I just can't say, so just, just forget about it. <sighs> Jacobson made at least two trips to uh, Gerard Theoretical uh, Agency to hear demo tapes of Bobby that Bobby had recorded. The agency, headed by Jack Gerard, specialized in supplying topless dancers to seedy clubs and actors and actresses for pro or porno film shoots. Busolio's primary job with the agency was to deliver cardloads of girls to the clubs. More than a few of those girls were members of Charlie's family. In March of 1969, just months before he was arrested for the torture murder of Gary Hyman, Bobby signed a songwriting contract with the agency and began recording demos. Busolayel also accompanied Melcher 
and Jacobson on at least two trips out to uh, Spawn Movie Ranch once in May of 1969 and then again the next month. Jacobson was a frequent visitor of the spot to Spawn and was known to boast of having held over 100 hours of conversations with a the all-knowing prophet known as Charles Manson. Greg also lobbied NBC to shoot a documentary film about the Manson family's hippie commune, and the network was for a time quite interested in the project. Along with Dennis Wilson, Jacobson also arranged for Charlie to record at the unnamed studio in Santa Monica, that session was also attended by Terry Melcher, Bobby Bussoliola, and several of the Manson girls. Lest anyone think otherwise, by the way, the Manson family certainly had no shortage of talented musicians. Convicted murderer Charles Manson, of course, was widely viewed by his contemporaries in the canyon as a talented singer-slash-songwriter-slash-guitarist. So, too, was Bobby Bessolera, who had jammed with Dennis Wilson, played rhythm guitar for the pre-loved lineup known as the Grassroots, knew Frank Zappa and had visited the log cabin and later composed and recorded and the film score for Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising. Convicted murderer Patricia Kernwinkle was an accomplished guitarist and songwriter. Convicted murderer Steve Clem Gorg, uh, Gorgon was a talented musician as well. He later played in the prison band assembled by Bussoliola to record the Lucifer Rising soundtrack. In addition, family members Brooks, Brooks Poston and Paul Watkins were accomplished musicians. And Catherine, quote, Gypsy, and a quote, Cher, uh, or, yeah, what is Cher? was a virtuoso violin player, as well as being a singer and accomplished actress. See, for example, Ram Rodder, co-starring Bobby Boussoleil, and the film partly at, where else, but Spawn Movie Ranch. Catherine Scher is notable in other ways as well, including her unparalleled feat of raising the bar so high on parental suicides that no one else, even in Laurel Canyon, is likely to a to be able to clear it. Orphaned as a child, when both biological parents purportedly committed suicide, Gypsy was adopted by a psychiatrist and his wife. Her adopted mother then allegedly committed suicide as well, leaving her to be raised by her adopted father. Cher is also notable for being the oldest of Charlie's girls, nearly 27 at the time of the murders, and most of the others were under 
21, and many, including Dean Morehouse's daughter, Ruth Ann Aush, Aush, I don't know, Morehouse, were minors. Gypsy lived in Bobby Boussoleo uh, before meeting and living with Manson, and she seemed to serve as recruiter for both of them. According to Ed Sanders, Gypsy Cher also, quote, arranged for Paul Rothschild, there you go, the producer of The Doors, to hear the family music. It seemed as though just about everyone had an opportunity to hear the family's music. Some of it was recorded in Beach Boy Brian Wilson's state-of-the-art house home recording studio. Some was recorded by Terry Melcher and Greg Jacobson at Spawn Ranch using a mobile recording studio. Some was recorded at Santa Monica, and by some reports, some was recorded by a major Hollywood studio. Other recordings were likely made as well, though nobody really likes to talk about such things. Greg uh, Jacobson recorded many of his marathon conversations with Charlie, but as with the demo recordings made by Dennis Wilson, everyone likes to pretend that such recordings were lost or destroyed or never existed. The family was filmed at Spawn Ranch by Melcher as well. The family members also shot an extensive amount of filmmaking, uh, quote, home movies, which some witnesses have claimed included family orgies and ritualized snuff films. A vast amount of NBC camera equipment and film was found to be in the possession of Charlie's motley crew, all of which was claimed to be stolen. It seems likely, however, given the network's known involvement with the family that the equipment was provided to them so that they could film their exploits. When not hanging out with Charlie, Tex, and Bobby, Terry Meltzer also found time to produce the records that first capitulated the birds to fame. Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, 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 the first recorded in January 1965, and ever since we've all been possessed with. I added that last part. 1965. 62 long years of mind, of indoctrination, and mind control of those nightmarish songs, but I like them. With the millions of other songs that were written, we still are subjected to Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, uh, the first recorded in January 1965 and released a few months later, basically, was the, the record that 
announced to the world the arrival of a, of a new breed of music. Those early hits were created simply enough by borrowing from the songbooks of folk legend Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger and then playing those songs to amplified equipment. Dylan himself followed suit not long after at Newport Folk Festival in July 1965, much to the consternation of the gathered crowd of folksies. In Hotel California, Barney Hoskins writes that the birds were, for the very outset, quote, conceived as an electronic rock and roll group, end quote. What Hoskins doesn't really clarify, though, is who exactly it was that initially conceived of this hugely influential band in those terms. Surely it wasn't the band's members themselves who decided that they were going to pioneer a new musical genre, since they probably had their hands full with just learning to play their instruments. It would probably be slightly more accurate to say that the Burrs appear to have been initially conceived as an electric folk rock group. By July 1966, however, when the band released its third album featuring Gene Clark penned Eight Miles High, it had morphed into something different and by doing so helped pioneer another genre of music, psychedelic rock. With a latter edition of Graham Parson and the grouping and the growing influence of Chris Hilton, the Burrs would next morph into a country rock band, thus helping to spawn the genre of music as, as well. According to rock and roll legend, the first two birds to get together were James Joseph McGuinn III and Harold Eugene Clark. McGuinn hailed from Chicago, son of best-selling authors James and Dorothy McGuinn, considered a very talented guitarist. Jim had played with Bobby Darren, the Lime litters, or lighters, I guess it would be, the lime litters. Uh, the Chad Mitchell Trio. In 1962, he left the Chad Mitchell Trio and worked for a time in New York City as a studio musician before hearing the call that so many others seem to hear and making his way to Los Angeles. Once there, he wasted no time hooking up with Gene Clark. Uh, Clark had uh, been born in Tipton, Missouri, the second oldest in a family of 13 siblings, must be Catholic, uh, and undeniably talented songwriter and vocalist. Clark cut his first record with a local rock and roll combo, when he was just 13 years old, he later joined the new Christie Minstrel, a vocal ensemble known during his tenure primarily for the hit song Green Green. Like so many others, however, Gene 
soon found himself packing his bag for where else, Los Angeles, where he met up with a recently arrived Jim McGuinn. The newly formed folk duo soon added a third voice to the mix. Our old friend David Crosby, who had formerly been the vocalist with Les Baxter Balladeers. Crosby brought a in major a Jim Dixon with whom he had done some soul sessions in 1963. The year before that, Dixon had produced a self-titled album for a band known as The Hillman, featuring a young mandolin player out of San Diego named Chris Hillman. Uh, Hillman had cut his first album with a band known as Scottsfield Squirrel Barkers. While still in high school, he was a highly regarded young bluegrass musician and was generally considered to be a virtuoso mandolin player, which I guess is why Jim Dixon cast him to play the part of bass player and the world's first folk rock band. As we already knew, Hillman lucked out in securing lucrative living accommodations right in the heart of what was to become the the music community's epicenter. So he was all set to become a rock star. Raised on a ranch in San Diego, Hillman had traveled traveled alone to Berkeley, when he was just 15, ostensibly to take private mandolin lessons. At about the same time, his father had, wait for it, reportedly committed suicide. Those two closely aligned events would, I guess, have had a profound impact on the young musician. Hellman would ultimately become a skilled bass player, and a major figure in the Laurel Canyon Spawn country rock movement. Like many others of that bent, Hillman had been a huge fan of Spade Cooley during his formative years, and he later cited Cooley as a major influence on his own musical direction. Most readers are probably not familiar with the story of, quote, of the, quote, king of Western swing, end of quote, which is a kind of a shame because, as stories go, it is a pretty good one. So let's digress here briefly and meet the man who was frequently cited as one of the forefathers of country rock and whom Brian Wilson has cited as a major influence as well. Throughout the 40s and the 50s, Donnell Clyde, Spade Cooley was a popular local musician and band leader. His weekly shows at the uh, Rendondo Beach Pier, Pier could draw as many as 10,000 appreciative fans, few of whom knew 
of his alcoholism, violent temper, and prior arrest for attempted rape. His popularity ultimately landed him his own local television show, The Spade Cooley Hour. His career, however, came to an end abruptly. It came to an abrupt end, excuse me, on April 3rd, 1961, when he tortured and murdered his young wife, Ella Mae Cooley, while forcing his 14-year-old daughter to watch in horror. According to court transcripts, Ella Mae had been spending a considerable amount of time in the company of two men identified as Luther Jackson and Bud Davenport, both of whom worked in the sprawling CIA-infested medical research facility at UCLA. On the day of her death, Ella May had made a rather bold decision to inform Spay that the two men had initiated her into a, quote, free love, and the quote, cult, and that she had decidedly decided to give up her family and all her possessions to join the group, which was in the process of buying land near the ocean to build and operate a private compound. Spade Cooley's response to his wife's declaration was, to brutally beat, stomp, and strangle her to death, but only after repeatedly burning her with a lit cigarette. All of this was witnessed by his by daughter uh, Melody, who had been told who had been told by her father that. Quote, now you're going to watch me kill this whore, end of quote. After doing that, just that, Spade then asked his daughter if she thought that Ella May was really dead, adding, well, let's see if she is. He then proceeded to burn her lifeless body repeatedly with another lit cigarette until he apparently was satisfied that she was indeed dead. Unlike so many other celebrity homicide suspects, Cooley was convicted a first-degree murder sentenced to serve a life sentence. He was sent to a rather notorious Vesaville uh, facility where he served eight years before being offered early parole. Just before his scheduled release, he arranged a November 23, 1969 comeback concert in Oakland for which he is capture had his captors had agreed to release him on a 3-day pass. The concert was reportedly a huge success and it looked as though Cooley's star was about to shine once again upon his pending release from prison. But that's not quite how the story ends. Indeed, instead, Cooley walked back to his dressing room right after the show and promptly dropped dead, thus ending the saga of Spade Cooley and allowing us to return to where we left off. After 
that is taking one more quick detour here to note that not long after Spade Cooley was scheduled for release, another peripheral character in this story decided that it might be a good idea to kill his wife as well, humble Harvey Miller. I guess it is, or Harv Miller, was a popular DJ in L.A.'s number one pop music station during the era, KHJ on AM on the AM dial. During the latter half of the 1960s, Miller was yet another of those players who helped launch the careers of Laurel Canyon bands by being the first to get their new singles on the radio. But then he, like Cooley, killed his wife and was sent to prison. Also like Cooley, he was granted early release, but unlike Spade, Miller successfully returned, resumed his career, excuse me, and now, as long last week, can return to the birds. By mid-1964, the nucleus of what would become the band had formed with the bonding of McGuinn and Clark between the two of them, they would provide the band with a its signature 12-string guitar sound, its two lead vocals, and in the early years, at least, its best songwriters. Then along came David Crosby, who added a little more than harmony vocals, at least on the first two albums, but who seemed to have largely hijacked the band with the help of manager Jim Dixon, who added fake bass player but real musician Chris Hillman and Crosby then rounded out the band by adding fake drummer Michael Clark. Clark had been born Michael Dick in Spokane, Washington. At 17, Dick ran away from home and hitchhiked to the land of enchantment known as California, apparently becoming Michael Clark along the way. The year was 1963, according to rock history, as told by David Crosby. Clark and Crosby met in Big Sur, which coincidentally happened to be the location of the notorious Elson um, Institute, where CSNY would play some years later. Crosby steals Nash and Young. A year later, the vagrant teenager with no drumming experience would find himself cast to play the role of the drummer in the band designed to be America's answer to the Beatles. According to Crosby, Clark's first L.A. address was the home of Terry Milcher. The band now complete first dubbed themselves the Jet Set and then the Beef Eaters, even recording a less than memorable signal under the latter moniker before finally settling on the birds, 
Before the end of 1964, Jim Dixon had signed the band to a deal with Columbia Records, as Barney Hoskins recounts, and waiting for the sun, the obvious ineptitude of Michael Clark and the shakiness of most of the others was still a problem when Jim Dixon got the band signed to Columbia in November. Columbia signed a new band to staff producer Terry Melcher. That assignment, it would seem, was a rather fortuitous one given that the fledgling band's rehearsal space just happened to be in the very same basement studio that Melcher snuck off to while in high school just two months after signing with Columbia. The band uh, or other, or rather its surrogates, were already in the studio recording Mr. Tambourine Man at the insistence of Jim, uh, of Jim Dixon. Despite the objections of various band members, Dixon reportedly pushed hard for the song to be the band's first signal, single. Blah, blah, blah. On March 26, 1965, just two months after pretending to lay down the instrumental tracks for Mr. Tambourine Man, the Birds played their first real live show. As the first act at the refurbished and reopened Cyril's nightclub, it wasn't there. I wasn't there, so I can't say for sure, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that the band, whose entire rhythm section was just learning to play their instruments, probably did not put on a very compelling performance. The Birds apparently played one other live show uh, before the Ciro's uh, opening, though the nature of that show appears to be in dispute, or perhaps there were two previous shows. According to Jim Dixon, the Birds' first public gig was booked by Lenny Bruce's mother, Sally Marr. She got them a job at Los Angeles City College noon assembly for a half hour. According to Carl Franzoni and various others, however, it was Vito Palekas who booked the Birds' first live show at a rented hall on Melrose Avenue just a day or two before the show at Ciro's. In any event, Mr. Tambourine Man was released about a month after the band had its big public debut at Zero's. The L.A. music scene would never be the same again. Before long, clubs big and small were popping up along the fabled Sunset Strip, and bands were spilling out of Laurel Canyon to play them. As Terry Melcher recalled... Quote, kids came from everywhere. It just happened. One day you couldn't drive anymore. It was like overnight you couldn't drive on the strip, end of quote. 
That soon changed. That would soon change by the summer of 1967, the mythical summer of love, the same year that uh, Bigfoot was found. Uh, the Minnesota man and uh, what happened in uh, Kent State and all the other mythical happenings. I'm hoping at least one of those things has some reality in it or is based on some reality. Go, Patty, go. Land of cults and bullshit and lies, man. That would soon change by the summer of 1967. The mythical summer of love, the club seed on the strip was quickly dying. It had been killed, deliberately or not, by some of the key players who had created it. Terry Milcher, producer of the scene's first band, new elder business partner of the club owner, Elmer Valentine, John Phillips, lead. Leader of the Mamas and the Papas. It was the show they produced, you see. The fabled Monterey Pop Festival held on June 16 through 18, 1967, that killed the Sunset, the sunset Strip scene. The bands that had filled the clubs became literally overnight too big to play such intimate venues. Over the course of the next decade, Laurel Canyon bands quickly moved from clubs to concert halls to massive sports arenas. But here we are, I suppose, getting ahead of ourselves. As for the birds, they carried on for a good many years, albeit with numerous personnel changes. First out was the man who many feel was the most talented member of the group, Gene Clark, who dropped out. In March of 1966, of course, just one year after the band had first taken uh, the stage in Cyril's. Clark was also the first original bird to pass away on May 24th, 1991, at at just 46 years of age, reportedly due to a bleeding ulcer. Two and a half years later, on December 19, 1993, Michael Clark died, as well when his liver failed. Both deaths were attributed to chronic alcoholism. Jim McGuinn, who remained a bird through numerous band lineups, joined the Subud? Subud, I guess. Subud, religious sect, 1965. Anyways, it's S-U-B-U-D. Subud, religious sect, I guess. It's not an acronym. I don't know what Subud is. It's interesting. Two years later, upon the device of the the cult's founder, he changed his name to Roger. A decade later, he became a born-again Christian, in a similar vein, Chris Hellman later he became a born again uh, he became an evangelical Christian uh, 
in the 1980s, but then later switched to a Greek Orthodox faith. Hillman played in various bird lineups with Graham Parsons' Flying Burrito Brothers and David Giffen's failed attempt at creating a second supergroup, one known as Souther Hillman Fury and Fury. David Crosby, of course, left the birds to become one-third of David Giffen's first supergroup, Crosby, Steel, and Nash. These days, he primarily spends his time inseminating lesbians and occasionally reuniting with former bandmates. Jim Dixon and Terry Melcher continued to work with some of the birds, primarily Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman. Melcher formed a particularly close bond with fellow trust fund kid Parsons, as did Melcher's sometimes sidekick John Phillips. Both Melcher and Phillips, of course, had ties to Charlie Manson. Melcher raved about him to Ned Doheny, uh, who former prison, whose former prison buddy, Phil Kaufman, was already noted Parsons' road manager. In unrelated news, Bill Sidon's the store's road manager was once a uh, paramour of Manson of Mansonite uh, Lynette Squeaky Formy. Family fingerprints, it appears, can be found in nearly every nook and cranny of the Laurel Canyon scene. Let's do the best I can. I think I'm done with the reading here. I guess it's what this is part of twelve now or eleven or whatever. Oh man, this this infection would go away. Anyways. Next will be Great Serendipity, Buffalo Springfield. Well, I'm having fun with it, even though it's the embarrassing part of uh, the reading and the butchering of names and uh, anything that has more than two or three syllables. <laughs> it's just the way it is. It's way it's always good, and it's never going to change, so why not do it? You might ask, why am I doing this stuff? Well, first and foremost, is for my own personal growth. I don't expect to have any great following. I don't even want a great following. I don't even want anybody to follow me to give them it. It's really just about me um, entertaining myself and my log cabin, my own personal log cabin, and um, and to personally grow and understand the world that I uh, come from. Only problem is the more and more you learn, the more and more you realize not how much you don't know, but how much you can't really talk to anything, anybody about it. Because everyone has their head up their butts, it seems that way. But that's not the right way of saying it. Let me rephrase that. That's not correct. Not everyone has their head up their butts, but everyone else is focused on other things. You know what I mean? So they're focused on, you know, the Ohio State-Michigan 
football game that will be over before you know it. <laughs> and then you can't even remember who won the last year's game and who was playing there, who the quarterbacks were, and who, et cetera. At least most of us won't. And so it's just the strangeness of life. One thing is for certain, though, most things that become popular that are on the Internet, the television, the radio, are foisted and put in our faces and our ears deliberately by, well, the rulers of this wicked system that we live under. The funny thing is, and all this, though, and in a day, is like, well, which, 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 it's always the same thing. The choice of, uh, you know, the better of two evils, or the least evil of two evils, which is really no choice at all. So, it's the same, well, you know, it's like the saying goes, so. Same as the old boss, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And there's a lot of truth to that. And so... I'm not saying that people shouldn't care and people shouldn't be proactive, and but you know when the one's great, perf- perf- you know, achievement in the past uh, 40 years is uh, uh, giving gays the right to be married and they basically the right to be licensed as dogs, like the rest of us, and they had more freedom than we did, and the average person before that. And they're too dumb to see that. And certainly are too dumb to see But, you know, it's, it, the problem is it's just the venting of anger and frustrations in all parties' parts. And they deliver it to um, just manipulation by the oligarchy, the thrilling elite, you know, to their mass propaganda machine. You know, you just get some dumb, big mouth, like myself. Put them on and then, and then on a camera and, um, hey, you know, say some controversial things. And next thing you know, uh, woo-hoo-hoo, feed upon it, feed upon it. Anyways, later on tonight, I'm going to do a reading because, uh, uh, I don't know, like the rest of the week, I'm looking like, well, I'm hoping this, this virus, the infection I got again, goes away, because I have my son for the weekend, and I, and I would like to do something. I'm so sick of being sick. God, I'm so sick of being sick. You know, it takes a lot of work for me to walk. And my walking slowly, progressively getting worse. This is an inevitable thing as far as MS goes. I've had a good ride so far, considering. I mean, it could have been a better ride if they didn't give me their designer disease, multiple sclerosis, but they gave it to me. Son of a bitches. And then with epigenetics and the environmental conditions to have to exacerbate and become worse. These son of a bitches. I sure hope I meet them in heaven or hell or whatever the place is. And, uh, you know, justice really is served someday. 
you know, a lifetime of being sick and frustrated. You know, I have a son that came from uh, a dad that was like Thor, Mr. Thor himself, Jim Thor. Great athlete and a physical specimen of a man. And had this be my lot, and see my big brother with Lyme disease. And he was, you know, diagnosed about the same, you know, in his 40s. To see my little brother going through what he's going through. I think even my sister now is starting to have things. I think they chose our family for something. I personally think when you between uh, a guy like my dad, I don't think they wanted him to survive the Korean War, and he did what he wasn't supposed to, and he did. And then uh, you got a mother who's not uh, a part of the elite, and but is a better artist than all of them combined. I think that they. Uh, you know, you got the the half breed and the and the uh, the European white girl getting together and they say, hey, this is this would be a perfect family. That and also, I think you know, they have uh, zones. They created certain pockets for certain diseases, and they experimented upon the youth through vac- the vaccination programs. They they still do. And that's the only explanation that I can see. Oh, no, maybe it might have some blood-related thing, too, but, uh, yeah, with this RH negative, RNH positive nonsense. But you know what? I honestly think they um, sabotaged us. I don't think they were consciously thinking necessarily of sabotaging the family. They said, oh, oh they're a <laughs> They're not one of us. They're not the Blue Bloods. They're not that important. So, yeah, what the heck? Well, you know, we'll just uh, play the game of Russian roulette and see who gets what. You know what I mean? Go, Patty. 1967 and all the psyops are going on. And Patty ends up on the frickin' television and also in the, the theaters. Now, that's a red flag. Now, I am spending time with a very likable fellow and somebody that I respect, uh, M.K. Davis, and his work on the Patty film. And he's totally convinced, like so many others, that it's real. And I'm getting there. Um... But then again, you know, when I look at it all together, collectively, something nothing coming out of California in the 1960s, especially was the, 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 the upping, the amping up, the ramping up of uh, all the uh, satanic occultic things that were going on, starting from 1966, has uh, up to be real. Anything good. Legit. So it's troublesome, to say the least. But I'll keep on the quest because either it's just full, it's just bullshit. Like everything else. 
And then if you want to know how uh, the Europeans, and then in particular uh, uh, the British, uh, conquest uh, so much of the world, how it was accomplished was, well, you know, you lie your ass off. Most cultures, that's not really that acceptable. Integrity, uh, the virtue of honesty, uh, was was upheld had much higher standards than European Christians. You'll find that uh, many people who call themselves Christians are some of the worst liars on the planet. So. And he's that damn book for it to justify it all. They sure do. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.